This is Joseph Gervaisi. I'm here with Ryan Casey. Today is November 4th, 2013. We're conducting this interview at my home in the Roxborough neighborhood of Philadelphia, and this is part of Loud Fast Philly. Ryan! Hey. Ah, I'm glad that we finally managed to work this out. Yes. It's taken some months to coordinate. My, getting my this fault. In, yes. It's entirely your fault. Uh, but it's all right now. Okay. Uh, so you were not born in Philadelphia, right? I was not. I was born in good old New Jersey. And what part of Jersey was that? Uh, I was born in northern New Jersey. I, I grew up um, in Newark first and then Caldwell. Okay. Uh, and what year were you born? 1978. Okay. So what were, when you were living, did you spend more time in Caldwell than Newark or? Uh, yeah, Newark was where my families were, were from uh, and then we moved out of there when I was about five. Okay. Uh, and then we moved to Caldwell and then when I was 16 uh, we moved to Basking Ridge. Okay. So what were those places, Caldwell and Basking Ridge, like? you know, when you were growing up or the neighborhoods? Um, well, uh, Caldwell is kind of a middle class area. Uh, it's pretty kind of similar to most things in Essex County, which is mostly where I was from. Uh, it was uh, pretty great, actually. Everything was in walking distance. Um, there's actually quite a bit of diversity in, the, in this area, too. So I grew up in an area I feel like um, is actually very reminiscent of Philadelphia, surprisingly. Really? Uh, yep. Oh, yeah. So is, is it somewhat city-ish, despite being a... Um, it's suburban, but the houses are so close together in a good chunk of where I... At least where I lived in Caldwell, that mm -hmm. it feels like everything's in walking distance. Um, you know, we knew people around us, and most people were from the same area I grew up in, or my family was from, which is Newark. And so it felt very um, community-based in, in a way that I really have not experienced until I moved to Philadelphia again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you grew up kind of in the shadow of New York as being like the cultural center. Definitely. You, right? uh, and was, did that play a role in, in your young life in you know, New York? I mean, definitely. Uh, my mom was always very... Um, focused and committed to, to bringing me to New York. I mean, she would she would have these days where she would um, actually pull me out of school for a day and we would go to the Museum of Natural History or the Met or, um, you know, any of the other museums and cultural institutions that she actually just wanted to to bring me to. And, and we would um, we would have at least three or four days during the year that we would do that and from a very young age. From, oh, that's great. Yeah, and so she was always pretty phenomenal about making sure that I took advantage of being this close to the city. And once I got old enough, I definitely did. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, of course, that eventually plays into to the punk stuff too. Right, right. Did you have siblings growing up? I, I'm actually an only child from my mom, but I have a half brother and a half sister um, from my, my dad's family afterwards okay. did yeah. you grow up with them or essentially on seven? weekends so so okay. yes and no um so during uh the week i would be with my mom and then usually um on weekends i would be with my dad mm -hmm. and so i sort of had the benefit of being an only child but also having siblings which right. i think is like the best of both worlds that does sound pretty good it's because pretty i'm sure good. you get indulged <laughs> to a certain degree in both camps but yeah yeah well i mean being uh, my brother and my sister i'm the oldest sibling and so there's a lot of um you know me looking after them and and you know trying to be the kind of best older sibling i can be but it was nice to kind of come back to my mom's house where i was sort of the sole focus you know that, yeah. that attention is sort of nice mm -hmm. yeah definitely so young ryan uh what were you interested in we're talking, you know, prior to punk, so like girl version of you. Well, um, growing up, uh, I was really interested in sharks, actually, which is like a weird thing that's sort of been plagued my my entire life. Um, I was really interested in science and like nature, and um, there were those were all things that I was really invested in. You know, I used to have a rock collection, and I used to have like nerdy things like that. And um, I don't know if you remember the the green box of cards that you used to get with, which had an animal on one side and information on the other side. Oh, I do kind of a Yeah, and you, like, in, in the mail, you would get, like, different cards every week. I had that, and I remember, like, that being my favorite thing. Um, but I was kind of a tomboy, you know? I, I kind of ran around a lot. I climbed trees, you know? As a young kid, I, I felt like science and, like, not knowing it, science at that point, but just, like, stuff around me was always really interesting, and I was always exploring. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also um, was really artistic. I mean, there was always something that was sort of through everything I did and my grandmother which is like a pretty a pretty big force in my life she used to kind of show me um books on Matisse you know with the you know the old books with the with the plates in them oh yeah yeah, yeah. And with like the little sheet of like almost like an onion skin over top of it yep. to protect it yeah, and so she beautiful. would you know and I remember this from when I was like two and three and four like her taking out a book on Matisse or Cezanne or and just like pointing to things and asking me questions about it and, and having me look at things and so um, without me realizing it until I got a lot older art's been sort of this like 
little string that's been kind of woven throughout everything I've done. Mm -hmm. So, so what art were you were you working? Were you, you know, drawing or painting? Or? I was drawing mostly. Yeah, mm -hmm. my dad's a pretty good um, artist too, even though he only draws occasionally. But um, I drew mostly and I colored. You know, basic things. I got into a lot of trouble for coloring on walls and things like that. Right. Um, but that was always stuff that I was doing. So I was always very artistic. Um, in that way, photography was something that came along much, much later in my life. Mm -hmm. did, you, did you feel like a generally fairly comfortable kid? I mean, it seems like with these kind of artistic influences coming into your head that you would be probably, you know, fairly... I mean, I was, com I was comfortable in the art aspect. I was not a comfortable kid at any, <laughs> by any means at all. Mm -hmm. I actually was a pretty shy kid um, for a long time. It took, um, when we moved out of our first area into Caldwell, um, I went to speech therapy pretty quickly because I, uh, I had a stutter. And so yeah. I would get so nervous that I would um, hyperventilate. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> or stutter, wow. um, which isn't funny, but I mean, now it's funny because of what I do. But um, yeah, so I mean, I was I was not a comfortable kid, but art was always something that I was really comfortable around. It's always been sort of the kind of comfortable, easing, very relaxing thing that I've done. Yeah. Do you manage to completely get rid of the stutter? Or is it ever something that kind of rises in really stressful situations? Um, really stressful situations, sometimes I'll, I'll notice myself do it. Or if I get really, really nervous, uh, it'll come up a little bit. But I'm really aware of my speech patterns. Uh, because I took um, speech therapy for about four years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of people who were in the class with me, they were uh, more for having issues with that S or R or something like that. For me, I just had to kind of take a breath and kind of roll out so that way I didn't get overwhelmed or um, overly stimulated, which I think was a big issue when I was little. Right, so yeah. the words just don't come out as a big garble because your brain's... You yeah, know. well, because like, I was always two steps ahead. You know, Even writing was always really difficult for me because, um, and I wrote a lot when I was younger, where I would be, I would kind of write here and I would be five sentences ahead of where where I should be because my, my brain was working faster than my hand. And I right. felt like that's probably verbally what was happening too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was always like a really, um, my reading skills were always, it was always a lot higher than my age group. And so I felt like that pl probably played into things as well. Right. You know, not a, I reading only, but yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Uh, so how then did the punk wind up coming into your life? I mean, when was that? And how did this initial tendrils work its way into your anatomy? Um, well, I was still in Caldwell. Uh, I was in middle school. I, I don't think... My mom kind of grew up with, um, you know, doo-wop and, and R&B and old soul. And that's stuff that I still listen to. But so that wasn't anywhere. And I never had any older siblings. So I know how that's usually like a catalyst for a lot of people is they'll find punk through that. But for me, it was actually... It's totally not cool, but 120 minutes. Mm -hmm. right, right. <laughs> Dave Kendall? Yeah, uh, yeah. When I was in, um, I think it was sixth grade, sixth or seventh grade, I saw a Lemonheads video and I fell in love with that band. And Do you remember, was it, was it Hate Your Friends? or? It wasn't. I, 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 wish, I wish I could be that cool, but it was like, it was off Ray. It was like a shame about Ray. That was sort of the band that was like, wow, this is something new. Like, it's not like... I was listening to like R&B and, and rap at that point in time. And that sort of was, the, I remember being the, that was the first man that I went out and was like, oh, this is sort of something I'm, I like. And through that was actually how I found out about Hate Your Friends and Lovey and Lick and Creator and all those sort of early Boston punk mm -hmm. albums that they had. And that was one of the reasons why I sort of went into punk. And I also knew a couple of dudes that were in a metal band at the time too and, and sort of these different things merged. I also got into Nirvana and Pearl Jam at that point too and I felt like the grunge movement mixed with sort of the alt-rock that was happening at that point and this metal band sort of converged together to then all of a sudden get my interest. You know, mm -hmm. It was really quickly. It was really quick. How do you think these things were kind of speaking to you? Like, were they showing you a world outside of your own or kind of, you know, giving, introducing you to different ideas or that you were maybe looking for? Or? Um, you know, I, I wish that it was that positive. I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I, I've always felt like I was searching for something and I always felt like there was something that um, I desperately wanted to find, you know, whether that be, you know, contentment or understanding. And, and I always felt a lot of, a lot of the music I listened to has that connection of, a feeling just so impassioned by your life and wanting to do so much but feeling like you're just not there mm -hmm. you know I, and I do feel like if you listen to obviously like Nirvana and you listen to Pearl Jam and you look and you listen to early Lemonheads like I feel like that's consistent or you listen to Bruce Springsteen I mean that's one of my favorite artists I think because he has that that desperation yeah there's and, a yearning quality to a lot of these I, bands like yeah. this is the voice of the outsider 
reaching for this thing. Because yeah. I never felt like I was quite in any one group. And I think, and I was no, I wasn't unpopular. That wasn't an issue, but it was more like I always felt kind of on the outside. And those bands talked about that in a really articulate way, in a way that made sense to me. Yeah, it always seems very earnest. Like, yeah, the, like exactly. it's, it's, it's not a pose, but this is like from a place of sincerity, you know, yeah. and I think a sincere minded person is going to pick up on that you know, pick up on the vibe of that. Yeah, definitely. Did you feel that coming into punk that this was then um, a community that was welcoming to you? So I thought about this when I originally thought about this interview, I, I realized that my experience was probably going to be a little bit different than what other people's were. I would love to say yes. And uh, it's, it's not Does that. Does punk that. really mean to you? <laughs> <laughs> punk doesn't mean to me, but um. I don't think that there's ever been a point, to be honest, where punk became um, a community for me. Uh, I think that I have friends that I've built a community with, but I don't think punk itself ever felt like home. But it just happened to be something that inspired me to do a lot of great things. Mm -hmm. Did you sense. want it to be, or were, or were you kind of content with it, you know, being a part of something, but not in that way? I think I think I went back and forth. You know, I think in certain points in my life, it probably was something maybe high school that I wanted more. Um, but when I once I got to college, I felt like whatever it was, it was going to be. You know, and it doesn't mean I don't identify as punk or I did then. It just means that uh, I always felt like I was a little bit outside of, of what things were, or I didn't look the part, or mm -hmm. for whatever reason. It doesn't mean that it's any more important. But punk was was never really a community for me. It was an an idea, right. and that idea was the was the inspiration for something else. Mm -hmm. Did you think that the parameters maybe were a little too too tightly reined in for some people or the interests were, were too circumscribed? I, I think that, that there are archetypes of what of what a punk is, you know, and, mm -hmm. and I think that that's fine. And I, I understand that the desire to have that connection to a movement or, or a group of people, but I always felt like I was just a little bit off in that way, whether it's a visual thing or whether it's my interest or whether whether it's really being shy. I mean, I think that's a really big portion of it. I'm not a really outgoing person. I don't, I'm not a, extra, a, a extrovert. I don't go out and seek these things. And so being kind of a quiet, shy person with, but also really intense is a weird combination, uh -huh. you know, and trying to find people to sort of understand that was always somewhat challenging for me. Hmm. It seems like you've kind of at least overcome a, a good amount of whatever shyness you had. Maybe it still lives like in a core of you, but I mean, you you know, you are out speaking publicly, you know, with your your work and your project and stuff. So how do you, um, how does Ryan get to that point where she's capable of doing that? I have no idea. I mean, I don't really know if I, if I, I don't feel like that though. I mean, I, I most of the time I still feel like I, I'm pretty um, restrained, you know, I'm pretty much in my life and not necessarily vocalizing. And I, and I understand putting, putting on shows and things like that, art shows that is like, that stuff definitely makes me more socially, um, comfortable, but I really kind of hate it. I mean, I love it, but I kind of hate it. Like those openings are great because it's done and I'm really happy with it. But, um, that's the most anxious and nervous I am. Uh, you know, that's that's not my default. My default is like being around people I know really well. Right. I don't I don't I don't function well in a large group. I have friends that do that, and that's maybe why we're friends is because I don't work like that. They work like that, and yeah, so yeah. we can work together. Yeah, and, I find it sometimes nice to be with someone who's extremely gregarious because they kind of can do the work. Like they exactly. can just tell bullshit stories and be a goofball, and then you know you can kind of reserve yourself for whatever comments you genuinely want to make, whether. Yeah. Keeping the ball rolling, you know. Well, and I think I'm better one-on-one, -on -one, or I think I'm better in a small group because I, I really find that, and maybe it's that sincerity thing, I'd rather know somebody in, like, a real way than talk about, you know, a band for a half hour. You know, what you, you know, I understand people do that, and that, that's a common interest. You find people, and that's how you start a relationship. But I'd rather know who they are as, like, a person. And I find that in big groups, that's really kind of impossible. Yeah, yeah, yeah I have this problem at parties, too, where, I, I like, I want to, I see a person yeah. saying, I want to have a real conversation with them, and the, the environment doesn't facilitate that because it's loud, and you're not expected to do that. You're supposed to be like, oh, what are you up to? Oh, nothing much, nothing much. Yeah. And then that's it. Yeah. And it just seems so like lacking substance, you know? We want substance. Well, and, and that's why I always find it a lot easier. I, I always tell my friends that I'm, I'm really not funny. Like, I'm not a funny person. You know, I have um, Dennis, Dennis Carey, who's amazing. He's, you know, the funniest person I know, and he can sit in front of a group of people and make everyone laugh because that's... 
he somehow was gifted with that ability. I'm not that person. I'm only funny to a few people because I'm only comfortable in those, with those people, yeah. you know, like, and I can count them, you know, and I know who they are. And the people who find me funny are the people that are closest to me, but I'm not that person usually, mm-hmm. you know. And in a social situation like a party, um, if I'm with all my friends, I feel completely at ease and I can be ridiculous and it can be great. But in a, in a large setting, it's still, it's still hard, you know. Um, I think if you're a sensitive person or if you're a shy person, those are all things that play against you in the, those parameters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, you've managed to travel a fair bit over the years, right? I mean, yeah. are there, what are some of the more interesting places that you've been able to go to? Um, well, in the last two years are two really interesting places. They've been on my kind of bucket list, I guess, for a while, is I went to Australia for a month, uh, which was... The penal colony. It was amazing. You the kangaroo. Yeah. <laughs> I did. I hung out with a kangaroo and a wallaby. Were they uh, delightful? Or were it, they kind of assholes? No, they were delightful. It was amazing. They, we went to a um, sanctuary, and they, they fed out of my hands, and it was in one... And the wallaby was blind, and it just, Aww, like, snuggled me, and I was like... wallaby. Yeah, I know, and I was just like, this is amazing. I could do this my entire life, so... So, um, yeah, we went to Australia and I stayed there for a month and I, tra- we traveled around quite a bit and, uh, you were with a friend or what with, yeah, with, with a partner actually at the time. Um, and he, he works at a, he worked at an animation studio there. And so I visited him and then we traveled a, a number of different places. And what was sort of great about the trip was that I got to see, oh, I went to the Great Barrier Reef, which is like my, what, one number, my, one, one, one of my most important things I ever did, I think. Um, and I got to snorkel on the Great Barrier Reef, which is oh, like... That's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I, I can only imagine how fantastic that is, but I can see like the yeah. listener can't see how, how happy you look right now, which is great. So it was, it was, it was really great because we went out and you know we were in there for like maybe like an hour, or half hour, and he's just like, okay, I'm good, and like he got out, and I stayed in there entire like five, six hours that we were there, and I did not get out of the ward, and he's like, that's insane, and he's like, and I was like, this is all I've wanted to do because science, well, marine biology was something I studied in school, and like. This is like a big deal for me. Uh, and we traveled around. I was supposed to go diving with great whites, uh, but it didn't happen. That sounds like the most terrifying thing in the world. It, it is. But um, like I said, I, my obsession with sharks um, was not kidding. And uh, it was, it's actually the number one thing I want to do in my life. But unfortunately, weather prevented us from, from doing it. So what, you're like in a cage or what? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. yeah. It's actually the only place in the world that does um, cage diving with great whites that doesn't use chumming, which is all the blood and all that stuff. Instead, they bring bring them in by by noise uh-huh. uh, and they play ACDC and I could not make this up. <laughs> Does the shark like ACDC? Apparently it tracks them. Wow. To, yeah. of all, do they decide like this is the band that they... Well, they <laughs> tried, I like? guess they tried a bunch of stuff. They tried a country band, Sharks Hated Country, which makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and they tried a bunch of things, but they found that the one, whatever it is about the decibel or what, you know, whatever it is, um, that was the one band that they are, they most frequently came to. And so instead of chumming the water, which can change behavior, behavior which is a big you know issue um that's kind of happening in science right now instead of doing that they used it to they bring them in by audio instead and so it actually makes them a lot calmer and less aggressive and so Did they tried wagner yeah <laughs> interesting no, shark. i think they tried classical and i don't know what the result was but all i know is that they're like we got the best result from acdc so they blast acdc acdc underwater to get the sharks. Can you them. if you're underwater, can you hear it? It's, what does it sound like? Well, I mean, I think you can you can definitely hear music and things. It's just kind of um, warbled a little bit. Okay. Uh, but sharks are able to really um, they they have uh, not to get too scientific or anything, but they're actually able to feel vib- vibrations in a way that humans don't, and so they can really feel it from from a very yeah, very yeah. far distance and so yeah. yeah but unfortunately with weather we didn't get a chance to do that so i still i still have to do that that's my next trip south africa is where i'm going to go next yeah that's, that's great yeah. yeah but um i went to australia and i went to iceland last january and that was uh, uh iceland i want to go to that place too it was pretty great yeah we went uh my friend and i went to go see the northern lights and uh we i mean it's like a crazy place to go because it's like volcanoes and waterfalls and snow all and in a, yeah well yeah and sheeps but like everything was in the same place so it's like you would be really cold and then be in like you know a hot spring you'd be cold with snow my hair was frozen and i was in like this beautiful warm bath it was like ah, the polar extremes of everything did yeah. you ever read the book independent people by haldor laxness i know it's his name I definitely not <laughs> uh he's an icelandic writer and um that's the only book of his that i read but i've read that some years ago and it kind of increased 
my obsession with wanting to go there um, because it's a really beautifully written book about the, the people living off the land there and their interpersonal relationships and all this and sheeps and, and sheeps uh, yeah <laughs> it's really great yeah it's it was really beautiful beautiful landscape really good food surprisingly and I've heard other people say otherwise but I found it to be vegetarian friendly not vegan friendly but vegetarian okay, so friendly. you are vegetarian vegetarian yeah. Okay. yeah and so like uh i found it pretty easy to, to to be there they have a lot of like raw food cafes and mm -hmm. so like you you have the option of finding that stuff it's really expensive though isn't it to... um we went in january which is the deep uh winter for right. them so it's like off season but that's the only time period you can see northern lights which is why we went and so we actually get a pretty good deal on it um yeah. so if you go off season but we couldn't make it around what they call the ring road because it was too it, I mean, everything is packed with snow. And so, um, but we made it through the kind of southern section of Iceland, you know. But we saw like a troll house and the whole thing. It was, it was amazing. Troll house? Yeah. Like well, a house the trolls actually live in? <laughs> not really. But I mean, they have like this whole mythology built into Iceland. I know that elves still live there. Yeah. Right? Did, you, did you see evidence of elves? <laughs> like elf elf spore or elf <laughs> droppings? Uh, not, not, not really. But there was like an elf. Where we go? We went to like an elf city town or whatever oh where all the lore God, comes from. I gotta from. go to an elf city. It's, what is an elf city like? It's just, it was weird because a lot of things were closed, but like everything was just like... You know, think about the decorations in South Philly. It's always just like, here's a gargoyle. You know, here's oh, an inappropriate shit all thrown yeah, together in a exactly. window box. But imagine if you took all of the mythology of like Norse mythology and then put it in like, you know, decorations. You know, and so it'd be like a troll, and then it'd be like an elf. You know, so it was just like a surreal experience walking through that. Yeah, that was our last day, but that was really, really great. I have to meet a fucking elf at some point <laughs> in Iceland before I die, which is like any day now, so I really need to work this out. Troll, whatever. Elf, yeah. number yeah. one. But I would, I'd recommend it, though. It's, it's, it's a beautiful area, and it's these, these extremes that you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't really think exist, you know, being hot and cold at the same time i don't know yeah so, that does sound really weird I, yeah. I would very much like to go we also did glacier hike which is like you know being i've never seen an, an iceberg obviously because i live in new jersey new jersey group, but like, <laughs> right, you're telling me there's no icebergs yeah. in new jersey <laughs> yeah. so like i mean there's a lot of things that i i had never taken a winter vacation before and that was really great you know um i really am obsessed with exploring and like explorers from you know uh, when people were first, you know, tracking uh, things through the northern regions or even like exploring like routes through like to Antarctica or... Do you have you know, like favorite explorers that you've oh, spent no, lots of time with? Remember when we talked before how I'm going to forget <laughs> their name? Um, it's, his name is like Ernest something and I and this the name's going to bug me. Um, he, he, I don't, do you know a lot about exploring? I know some explorers. Okay. But do, you, do you remember the Endurance... What, what you know the ship is it the, the HMS endurance? I think so, right? right. Uh, and then and what what was the guy's name who who led uh, that? <laughs> See? Yeah. Oh, he was. But it's like there's actually a movie, a two year, two hour documentary about him. Um, and it, he he does endurance, and and I remember it because like there's this black and white photo because the photographer on board kept his camera and kept on photographing the ship while it was being crushed with ice. Oh, this is someone who was looking for the Northwest Passage or something and got caught. <laughs> something in, like that, uh, yeah. Did you do you read the uh, the Dan Simmons book, The Terror? I have. I yeah. love it. It's so good. Yeah, with the, the Erebus and the Terror. And all. Yeah. yeah. So I have, and I just bought this like crazy like book um, from from Amazon. That's just like this thick book of like all the explorers that you ever want to know. So I'm like making my way through that too. And um, is it is it Heckle? Maybe it's Heckle. Yeah, I, I don't remember. So any yeah, name you tell me. Yeah. Well, kind of, anyway, those of you listening, listening yeah, yeah, those, those of you listening, uh, look up the Endurance, and then you can laugh at me because it's probably this really obvious name. Yeah. But it, that's one of the, my favorite stories because like they survived, and you know, um, and there was also there's this part of the story that that talks about how they had to kill the dogs to eat them, and like the like when some of the dudes cried because that, that those were their companions, and I think about even when you're doing that for your life, you know, you still feel this empathy towards this other living creature, and I, I, there's like these best parts about humanity yeah yeah within that story that i, I quite like yeah, so. i just read a book about the lewis and clark expedition it was a fictionalized account i mean it was based largely on history but it was told you know it was written as a novel and then one of the parts of the book has them looking for um they heard about these things called prairie dogs they go by they call them a slightly different name like whatever the french would have called them uh and they find the, the field with these prairie dogs and they want to try to extract one to take it back with them but they can't get it out of the hole so they eventually just have to dump all this water into it like gallons and gallons of water and finally the sad ass little prairie dog rises to the top but it's alive and they bring it back to the ship 
and it kind of becomes their little pet and they all love the prairie dog so at christmas time they decorate his little cage and they have little gifts that they give him like little like bits of corn or whatever miraculously seems to survive through the whole uh, journey yeah i mean that's it, that's what i think was really impressive about that story is I mean, the end of the story, I mean, they survive, but, uh, you know, the last part of the story is that they, they're actually, they're actually going through water that's some of the most turbulent in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, this is the water that people nowadays don't survive. And they made it through that. And then they they came back again for the people they had left behind. Mm -hmm. And so it, it just says something about people's, um, I don't want to say innate, but people's ability to be kind to each other and and it's sort of nice to have those stories around and i think exploration tends to bring out the worst in people but sometimes i think it's some people because i mean at least in in reading this book i could see that 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 most of them lewis and clark especially were were very respectful to all the indians that they encountered and i think that the, the narrative tends to be that people come in and just kind of exploit everyone and consume everything that they come upon but i don't think that that's always case yeah, uh, yeah and, and, I, and i'm really interested in people who who yearn to see like who want to travel who want to do these things and and also are kind to the people around i mean one of the people that i i most admire and i'm not i'm not saying i agree with everything he's ever said but but is darwin you know the idea that this wasn't someone who uh was an explorer he wasn't you know he got sick so so often on um on his travels but and he didn't travel at all after you know um after he went on the beagle and but he is revolutionary because of his thought process that because he sat in front of something he looked at looked at what he saw and he created this phenomenally important idea mm-hmm. um that he just did while sitting in front of it and i feel like that experience and not just being in a lab but experiencing nature and having that connection with it really changes your perception and i think you can see that in a lot of different people but darwin obviously is one yeah of yeah because i guess you're seeing it in a full context you know exactly. it's, it's not removed and isolated as a single element but you see it as part of this whole <laughs> tapestry of kind of yeah. life and creation which i think is important to see it that way because you can see you know the interconnectedness and hopefully be somewhat respectful of that interconnectedness. Well, and you know, obviously, there there's some some problems with you know um, the way originally science was was sort of brought about and the way people collect specimens, and and that sometimes can be problematic. And and I agree, but I love the idea that him in front of something and him experiencing something and looking just at how things work allowed him to explain the world. And I think that's sort of like I'm not a religious person all at all, at all. and how I look at the world is through science. And through kind of looking at how things work, and that gives me a lot of security and, and mm-hmm. good feelings. And I feel like that—that's how Darwin was too. You know. Right. Were you raised with religion at all? I was. I was. I was raised Catholic. Right. Yeah. Did, were you confirmed? Did you go through yes, the full? Yes, I went like, through the as full. As was I. Yeah. <laughs> the full thing. I would. I would probably say I was a pretty devout Catholic, and not not for a lot of. I mean, I was always really pro-choice. I mean, my mom is really really pro-choice and a feminist, so you know she wouldn't. She never bought into that stuff. Um, and you know, there's a lot of things I always disagreed with, but. I sort of kept being Catholic probably until I was about 20. I'd say I'd probably identify as Catholic till maybe 19, 19, 20. So this, so how does then, how do you remove yourself from that? I mean, do you cease believing in a creator and a Jesus Christ in the whole? Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure that um, from when I was confirmed to uh, when I was 19, there was a lot of little things that, that knocked away from, from my feelings. And, and, and I don't want to blame science at all, but I do think that I found more solace in explaining the world through I don't science think it's a blame. Terms. I mean, yeah. <laughs> blame would kind of ascribe, you yeah. know, some kind of negative qualities yeah, it's, to... But I mean, I think people look at science and they say, well, obviously, if you're a scientist, you wouldn't... I think people can be religious and be scientific. I just felt like that didn't make sense for me. Um, but I also think I went to all-girls Catholic school for one year and you know, being in religion class and having people um, talk about um, things like reproductive rights or, or homosexuality or any of those things, it was a jarring thing uh, because I grew up in a fairly liberal house and, you know, not my dad, but my mom. And um, it was really surprising how um, hateful people can be and how little understanding people have for, for you know, uh, the rest of the human population. Right, yeah. You know, and I think that probably started chipping away at things actually at that point. You know, I enjoyed my time at that school, but I think that class really taught me like, well, this isn't really connecting with how I feel inside. Because I think that that's our balance is as we get older, we try to, you know, form the things in our life um, to match up with how we feel as individuals, you know, mm-hmm. and that, that wasn't working. Yeah. And I think uh, when my grandmother passed away, um, I was 20, uh, I think the nail in that... Um, in that religious coffin uh, was when the um the priest forgot her name and forgot her age and a lot of other information and i felt like whatever 
thing I had been holding on to that I knew I really wasn't interested in anymore. I think that was just pretty much the okay. Yeah. We're we're out. And my and my my mom's you know somewhat religious you know in a peripheral way, but my grandmother's very very religious, and I think maybe that was also the. And she was Italian. Um, no, she was Irish. That, oh, that was on right, my right. other side. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she was a very Irish Catholic, you know, and I remember going to churches all the time. I, I loved it. I lo- there's a, you actually um, love going to church? I did. <laughs> I love going to church. I mean, but you think about it. If, if I'm an artist, like, um, I grew up in North Jersey. They have some of the oldest and largest churches in the state. Okay, yeah, I can understand that. Yeah. Then, yeah. Uh, and there was a... Um, there's a couple of churches up there that I really um, love. Like there's a place called Sacred Heart, which my brother actually just got married in. And she used to take me in. It's this large cathedral and everything is beautiful. If I can take out the religious aspect out of that church, I would love to just be in it all the time because yeah. it's just this beautiful piece of work. Um, but, of course, you can't do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I would have liked being in church a little bit more if I was in a church that wasn't built in the 1970s, you know, where it just yeah, looks definitely. like, you know, it's a functional, slightly designed box you know, rather than this kind of more, you know, Baroque and, and beautiful piece of work that you can kind of get lost in looking around and hopefully not listening to the boring old guy, you know, <laughs> yeah. t- talking about a bunch of boring old guy bullshit. Well, and, and I think that being Catholic, you know, um, there's the the churches I, were, I went to were pretty traditional still. Um, they do the Mass in Latin? Uh, I think when I was little, I went to Masses in Latin. But when I got older, the big church I went to was, was in English. But that, I remember having Latin. And my stepdad is Greek Orthodox. So I remember going to those churches too. And um, that's just a whole other thing. But all the churches are really beautiful. But, um, you know, I think very quickly as I got older and I started listening more, it, it became less and less in connection with how I felt about everything else. And my, you know, I remember going to a, a friend's wedding who, um, who I love and it, you know, I love her, but the whole service was about a wedding or a marriage being through being a man and a woman and like took 20 minutes out of that wedding to talk about the sacrament of marriage and just preach this really hateful thing. And, and you know, that was way, way beyond when I kind of dropped being Catholic. But I was like, oh, you just sort of thinks I just need that reassurance. Cool. That's that. That's good. Yeah. And also, you know, um, not defend anybody, but I, I, yeah, I don't really think there's a deity in the sky. I think I'm over it. I think you could say that about yeah. <laughs> especially considering who you're talking yeah, to. But it's, uh, yeah, it's true. But I mean, I try to be respectful. I think people find comfort in different places, and I, and I'm not going to be the person to tell other people how to live their lives. What I do mean, you think of the new pope? Um, I mean, I kind of think he's the same as the other pope. I mean, he really hasn't changed that much in terms of. I mean, I understand like he made that you know monumental phone call and all and all that to. But it, when it gets down to it, he's still not doing anything to really resolve some of the major, um, you know, doctrine. But isn't he, like, riding around in a unicycle and lives in, like, a squat house or something? <laughs> like, he's totally cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I wish that was, like, a pope, you know? I, I wish that suddenly it just, like, Pogo shifted. Pope? Yeah. I mean, I, I have a lot of friends who are part of new churches that, that don't have the sort of um, doctrine that you see Catholicism have or some of the other, you know the worst born again Christians or anything like that, you know? So I think that's available. I'm not interested in that, but I know other people who, who are, that are decent human beings, you know? Um, I have a lot of people who have very different viewpoints than I do in my life. So I feel like that, that debate is reasonable, but it doesn't mean that, you know, I don't stick with, with what I believe. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. Darwin makes way more sense than a, a beard, another bearded man in the sky. I'm absolutely with you. Anyway, (laughs) fuck beards. Yeah. Uh, All right. So continuing on, kind of moving back into the punk thing. Well, part of what you do in, in, in your artistic endeavors and then kind of connecting to punk and, and social activism is, is these, maybe you should explain this, but these exhibitions and these events that are kind of raising an awareness and money as well for different issues. So mm-hmm. if you could just kind of you know talk about what they are. I'm going to close sure. the store as you're talking. Sure. Cool. Uh, uh, so uh, I guess it was about maybe four years ago. I started... Um, I guess I started thinking about what I wanted to do and, and I always felt like, you know, and I had just kind of gotten out of grad school and finished my second degree and I was like, okay, well, I'm sort of ready to do other things and, and I was working on my own art, but I, I felt like a lot of the activism that I had been part of, you know, my early 20s or even in my teenage years was sort of it sort of fell to the wayside because being in grad school, you are intensely in it. Right. Well, yeah. what, were those, what were those issues that, that fell aside? At that time, you know, what were you into then? Um, well, I think the two biggest ones, and obviously, you know, there's probably a lot more, but environmentalism and reproductive rights are, are two of the ones that I think I was the most active at. Um, mm-hmm. I 
volunteered a lot of different places at nature centers and I did hikes and like I talked about you know things like invasive species and you know how to recycle you know basic things on, on how people should live in connection with their environment mm-hmm. um but also um you know in terms of reproductive rights my mom was always a pretty um forward thinker when it came to abortion rights you know she never uh, was someone who didn't like uh, say from the beginning you should have a choice over your own body and she was always very open about you know sex too and so I never felt confined and um, I think from a very early age I remember writing an article for my school paper when I was 15 just moving to that new town and you know this is not going to go well right. where there was like clearly like an, like an editorial where you know pros and cons you know one person took one position and I of course took this very hard stance on um, on abortion rights including you know late-term abortions and the whole thing and and I remember getting in uh, not trouble with with the the teachers but having a lot of confrontations with, with other students about it and um you know being shy <laughs> just moving to a new a new school that was hard right. you know but um so you get a sort of baptism through fire. Yeah, and, you know, and, and also, I mean, it, even in my classes, too, I, I had a really great history professor, which is probably why I'm so interested in history. Uh, and he, you know, talked a lot about um, a lot of uh, issues when it came to diversity within the school, because the school I, I moved to when I was 15 was completely white and completely rich. Like, I mean, it really had none of the qualities of what I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And um, hearing people talk about uh the way they viewed other people and and you know the way the group they they viewed areas like nork even was so jarring and i remember getting into yelling matches in this history class because it was so so um there's so much prejudice that it was actually quite unbelievable and so that was really my introduction to like sort of more civil liberties and reproductive rights i felt like i'd always had those things but i never really needed to talk about them because I just lived in an environment that, that made sense, right. you know, but um, when you live in an area that's that's really white and really rich, things things change. I mean, obviously it makes sense that eventually punk became a much bigger part of my life at that point, like almost same time as, is when I started going to shows, you right. know, so I think those things are very, very linked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So then you say that at a certain point, those things kind of fell, fell aside as you were yeah. sort of focused on... On grad school, school. yeah. I I went to grad school in New York and I I got a double master's. And so it was a really intense couple of years and I was working full time. And so I I felt like even though I, you know, eventually I showed up for some stuff, it really wasn't, I wasn't very active. And so when I sort of like came out of that and I became um, a professor, which I currently still am, um, I had time to be able to do some other stuff. And uh, when I started showing my own work for the first time, because I hadn't shown it before, um, I really was really nervous about that, I started really organizing shows. And my friend Josh Robeson did a bird show with a group of people. And, and Josh and I have had an ongoing nature night together uh-huh. for the what, last... What happens like, at nature night? <laughs> so um, I guess about, it's really been a long time, about six years ago, we started to, we had met and we both have an interest in certain environmental causes. We're like, well, why don't we sit and we would just, let's just like hang out and watch nature. And so we started with David Attenborough documentaries right. which i can I imagine like. you have a shrine to attenborough uh, he is my favorite i i do actually kind of have a shrine to him um actually josh Robinson brought me back he went to new zealand he biked around new zealand and he brought me a picture of him and framed it and everything uh, was, so do you have really little candles by it it's, it's pretty great uh so uh you know we got together and we started watching nature about once a week once every two weeks um and it's not as often now but we still do it um and we just went through all the all these documentaries and i think it really ignited my my interest in environmentalism again it sort of went oh wait this is something i'm really interested in this is something that i've always always been important i I, like i mentioned before um, i studied marine biology at stockton for a really long time and so um and i wrote on it extensively and what what, what moved you away from taking that as your as your career you know um well i was actually in marine biology for three years i changed in my junior year which was of course my parents were not soaked um but I've been doing photography along with it. And I just, I think, realized, and it was it was at the point where my grandmother died, and that was a pretty critical moment for me, uh, that I realized that um, that all the things I wanted to do in my life, the activism stuff, the nature stuff, the, the you know, the traveling, all that could be accomplished through photography. But if I was a scientist and I was in a lab and the things that I wanted to do, which was field research, was so um, unlikely that I feel like I made a choice of like, this is where my heart's at. This is where I really want to do. And so mm-hmm. I shifted over. I still wound up kind of uh, getting a minor and everything. And, and I also got a minor in women's studies, which was, you know, that backs up some of the other activism issues that I have. 
And I felt like that transition to that kind of defined who I was. And I think that was a big moment. Um, but then when I went to grad school, I kind of lost it a little bit. And then when I came back to it, it was um, it was pretty great. And so Josh put on the show, it's called For the Birds. And it was a group of artists similar to what I do now. And um, and I helped him out with certain parts of it. I donated pieces. Where and, was this held? Uh, this was at... Um, uh, Benna's in South Philly. Okay, so at this point you've moved to, to Philadelphia. I mean, um, I should guess maybe step back just a little bit to say, like, how did you come into the city since it's part of the focus of the thing? It's true. Um, so I, I moved to Philly about six years ago now. I mean, mm-hmm. only, I'm, I'm actually a pretty new person to the city. And so um, this was probably four or five years ago that, that he had the show. Um, and I moved to Philly because all my friends are here now. Okay. And now all my friends are here. But I moved from, I was in grad school in New York, and then I moved... Um, I was with my parents for a while, and then I moved back, um, back here to, to to actually live with a bunch of my friends in in South Philadelphia. Yeah. Did you have prior to coming to Philadelphia? Did you have impressions of the city? You know, oh. what, what did you think? Like, what is what was the thought of what Philadelphia was like prior to actually living in Philadelphia? Um, I'm sure that a lot of people from North Jersey will understand this. It was um, a little weird at first. Um, what really changed my focus from someplace like New York, which is where I was going to shows, North Jersey, which is where I was going to shows, moved to Philadelphia was I went to Stockton, which is in the Pine Barrens, which is Stockton College, mm-hmm. yeah. which I now I am a professor at, which is sort of a strange thing. Uh, and so I, I went there, and it is literally in the middle of the Pine Barrens. And I grew up in, in areas that where everything was in driving distance and I was around lots of different people. So this was a really big shock to me. Yeah. Uh, and there's not a lot of shows, or at least not shows that I knew about. I didn't know anything about the punk scene in South Jersey. Um, I still probably don't, to be honest. Yeah, you know, there used to be shows at Stockton State, like back in the 90s. We used to, there was a regular scene there, which was... Uh, you were talking about short-lived. you're probably talking about the campus center, which I those, those are some of the only shows I've been to. Yeah, in South Jersey, has been on on Stockton's campus. Yeah. Uh, so I knew that there was stuff going on, but I remember the first day of Stockton going through, and this is this is the introduction to Philadelphia punk. It's through this single person. Right. Um, on my orientation day, I was walking through. Uh, two sets of doors and I saw this dude who like head down, giant mohawk, all these patches, and I remember being like, shit. Awesome. Okay, cool. You know, one of them. Yes. And I was just like, at least there's somebody else that that, that's going to shows. And that was actually Josh Greigel. And, um, and I saw him, you know, first day of my freshman year and I actually didn't meet him again until like, you know, two years later, but he actually, him and Dennis Carey, um, of fighting dogs and pink coffins fame, fame. Uh, basically they did a show called enjoy on, um, 91.7, 91.7, which was Stockton's radio, that came on every night. And that was actually my introduction into Philadelphia Punk, was listening to their show. Mm-hmm. Not knowing them yet, but listening to, to that show. And um, it, they talked about bands and shows that they went to, and it suddenly became very accessible. Right, you know, right. And then I, you know, in about the same time period, um, Plow United uh, was playing some of their last shows. And so the first show I ever went to in Philadelphia was one of the last Plow United shows. Tri- plowing night shows at the church and so yeah yeah, which was hot as hell Uh, (laughs) sorry church people but it is so warm uh but that was the first show i went to philadelphia and my first experience with philadelphia punk you know Mm -hmm. was that show and then meeting josh and josh and dennis that was really my entrance into philly i mean i really wouldn't would not have probably moved here or been part of any of this if i hadn't had those relationships i became a dj right before them and so I would DJ, and then I would hang out with them afterwards, and then I met people through them. Right. And now you're in the most amazing city yeah. in the world. <laughs> and now, and now, now I blame them for me being here. Yeah. yeah. So what did you end up liking about Philadelphia? I mean, and you know, ultimately decided to live here. Were there... um, well, I mean, I think I was really uh, not positive that I was going to live here for a while. I think living in New York really actually pushed me into living in Philly. Yeah. Um, I really loved New York. I loved being in high school and going to shows there. But when I eventually went there for grad school, I just felt like... Um, well, obviously it's really expensive. Everyone knows that. But at the same time, I just didn't feel that, um, I was getting as much activism as I wanted or, or sincerity as I wanted. Something was missing. And I don't blame New York. I think maybe it's just the age that I was there that mm-hmm. it didn't fit well. And what I liked about Philly, um, very, very early on, cause so, you know, Josh and I met and, and, you know, we dated for a little while and then, uh, you know, Dennis and I became really, really close friends. And then we started going to shows together in a style like 13. And, you know, I started listening to bands that were really outside of what I normally listen to in New Jersey and the VFW halls. The introduction I had into punk was 
there was a Lifetime Western and Bouncing Soul show. That's yeah. that's the show I remember going to. So glad you got to see Western. I love those guys. Oh, yeah, they're so good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, every, everyone, yeah. you know, kind of gets down on them, but they are... Do they, people, what, people don't like Western? Or fun. I mean, that's, that's the other thing. I think they're a great band. Uh, and so I saw that show, and that was my introduction. So pop punk was really important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, New Jersey Joystick, and that's sort of the NJPP movement, which was like the counter movement to the hardcore shows. I remember going to shows and being like, wow, like this is like a hardcore band, an emo band, and a pop punk band all playing together. You know, so you have like My Favorite Citizen, and then you, you have all these different bands that are coming together and playing one show that have very different genres, which I really don't think happens anymore, which is kind of a bummer. It is unfortunate, yeah. Yeah, uh, but so that was my experience with punk on a local level with North Jersey, New Prov shows, or the Wayne shows, things like that. When I moved to Philly, though, suddenly Stalag is nothing like that. You know, I remember the first show I saw there, is, I think it was Catharsis. You know, so my entrance in there was like Catharsis and, and Asuk and, you know. Yeah, so felt, you're getting a crustier, more metallic experience. Yeah. A little harsher, maybe. It is, but. A little stickier. <laughs> but to be honest, that sort of connected with, like, my increased interest in activism and my more aggressive feelings about, about how to be involved. You know, it was around the same time I became an escort for a women's clinic, and I felt like I was much more dedicated the idea that my music and my life was going to be matched up now obviously i still feel that that should be the case but at the same time i recognize that we're you know very different people at different points in time so we can have varied interests you know but i started moving in that you know the first time i listened to born against was when i was 2021 going to Stalag shows you know i you know tragedy the same thing so i feel like all those bands sort of came into play at the same time for me and um you know, it was very opposing to what pop punk was. Mm-hmm. And I can say now I like both and I'm okay with that, you know, but it's, you know, at the time you're like, whatever, you know, and you sort of distance yourself from one because you think you have to choose. Yeah. Although I don't think that's the case necessarily. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of a false choice, but, uh, yeah. or a fool's choice. <laughs> yeah. But at the time, yeah, these things seem much more. Well, and I think, you know, living in London too, which which we spoke about a little bit before, um, you know, being on my own for that amount of time without my family, my mom's a huge presence in my life, but, you know, she has a pretty, you know, no one in my family has tattoos no one in my family has piercings or is into punk or anything like that so I was the first one and so when I came home from London and I had multiple tattoos at that point and I had you know two piercings it was like you know very jarring for my family but I felt like that was like I went to that extreme with a lot of different things and I think Philly sort of wrapped up in that a little bit Mm -hmm. you know um and I felt good about that at that point in time you know but eventually you you know calm down a little bit and you realize that maybe you're all those people you know not just that that one yeah right yeah yeah, yeah. one (laughs) hopes so Um, well yeah especially when you're in your 30s you're like oh it's kind of an idiot at at both points you know what i mean like you know yeah Uh, so we'll get back to the the art and then the shows Mm -hmm. and stuff so you you were saying before when we kind of went back that your friend had set up yeah right so so josh robinson set up this this bird show and um you know like i said we had been doing the nature nights for a while we've been talking about doing shows we've been talking about we were talking about how we can bring nature to other people and you know there's a lot of other people like tony um that pointless tony pointless that has been doing stuff like that for a really long time and you know we were talking about coming from an artistic end of it so you know he put it on and he organized a good chunk of it and i helped him with it and it was like such a really good experience that you know for him birds were always his interest but the ocean that stuff was always mine and so i think we really conceptualized both shows through those nature nights mm-hmm. and so he had the bird show and the next show that I did was the ocean show so it was almost like a, it was a pairing I, I felt like you know we were both focusing on these things that were really important to us and that sort of like broke me into to organizing shows it's not something I really expected I thought those show that'd be it like mm-hmm. I'm done but then uh, the next show um, would be the show that I um, organized with with um, Mike Bukowski and Gene and that was for uh, the um, uh, for bats, and so and then that was you know and being with other people and organizing is obviously a lot easier. And that was it, at the Grindcore House. That was at Grindcore right. House. You want to explain maybe just like a little bit what what Grindcore House is and how they sure. operate and all that. So Mike and Dave, who run Grindcore House, um, are actually two of the best people I've ever worked with because they're really open to to putting on these shows, not just because they want something to fill the walls, because they honestly are focused and committed to. Um, you know, activism, and they're committed to, to these environmental causes that I hold really, really dear to me. And so working with them and having that space and having such a good space like that, it, it was actually really phenomenal. And they were really, really supportive. And they were supportive of that show. But then I did a solo show this year, which is the last show I did, which was a pause show. And they were also really supportive of that as well. I mean, Grindcore is really a great venue. You know, it's obviously, a, it's for vegans specifically, but it's also for anybody else who 
kind of gives a shit about things that are happening in our city and things that are happening environmental issues and you know they're just really um i mean i can't say enough good things about them yeah it's a very, i think it's a very welcoming place like i think when people I come in too. who aren't necessarily vegan and don't necessarily like grindcore music it you know is clean and pleasant and, and feels yeah. like a comfortable environment not like oh you know what are you doing here well and and i think that they're really welcoming and i think that my experiences my experiences with them putting on shows has also been that they've always been very attentive to what i needed at the moment and they're also really stoked on it they want people to come they tell people about it it's nice to be part of a venue that's really just excited about it as much as you are and i mm -hmm. think that they are and they want everyone to feel like like that's their place and um, I don't think it's just, I mean, I think that if you go into Grindcore House, you know it's not just a punk or a Grindcore place. It's, yeah, it's yeah. kind of made for everybody. They want people to feel very included. And I think that's a pretty nice nice gesture. Yeah. And also makes good business sense, because otherwise if they're dealing with a really tiny minority of uh, people, yeah. they would not be a business still. You know? Yeah. I mean, and I think that, that the space, you know, from artistic end, is also really nice. It's a good, good space. It has a lot of wall space. And so you actually can build a much bigger show. You know, which is also great. But I mean, I also worked with Benna's and, uh, and also B2, um, which Nancy... Um, what is B2? Oh, they're both two cafes. And so that's actually the sister to Benna's. Okay. And that's when, that one's on Passyunk. And so they've hosted, they hosted the World Wildlife Show and then Benna's hosted the Ocean Show. And, uh, and then Grindcore hosted the other two. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, there's actually quite a few uh, businesses that are really open to wanting to contribute and to be part of that community. And that's the businesses that have been really great in, in that response, at least in my experience. Mm -hmm. Um, and on the other end of it, all these artists have been, have donated. I mean, that's something I'm, I don't know if everyone realizes, but all four of the shows I've done, everybody donates their work. No one takes a cut out of it. They spend time and money and effort in doing something because they wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly believe that, that money should go to these organizations. And we try as best as we can to put out information about these organizations too. And so it's really a treat for me because as much as I think it's important um, to, to me, it's nice when other people go, oh yeah, it's important to me as well. Right, right. And they're willing to put in the time and effort to prove that, mm -hmm. you know, so. So I guess one of the things I wanted to get into in, in terms of doing those events is uh, for, for folks listening, kind of the, a little bit of the mechanics of how do you go about setting up something like this um, so that someone who maybe would want to do something like this in another area would have some semblance of an idea of how, how does this happen, you know, how do you put this together? Um, so I have a little bit of experience with organizing shows because as a professor I have to organize student shows. And so um, I had organized probably two or three student shows before I organized this first major charity show. And um, I think the biggest thing is um, being okay with, first of all, um, putting in a lot of time. It's not, I mean, people think it's just like, whatever. I'm answering emails constantly. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm used to that being, being a teacher. Right, obviously. Stuff, yeah. yeah, but like, um, it's a lot, a lot of time. And when you're doing it by, your, by yourself, especially, you're answering emails, you're like resolving pickups and drop-offs, you're, you're doing all these things. And the biggest thing to start, though, is that you need a clear idea on what the show is going to be. Who's it going to benefit? What's it going to be? What are you going to allow in? You need people to, to have parameters because if you don't, one of two things can happen. Either it's too open-ended where people feel like they're overwhelmed by that, or the other end is you'll get work um, that's shit. Mm -hmm. so. Right now, do you need to make these kind of executive decisions in terms of like if someone sends you something that you either think is like a piece of fucking garbage or is maybe, I don't know if you've had this problem before, like something that you would find to be personally offensive? Yes. Yeah, like so, they're going to be like, oh, I'm going to do this thing, this yeah. show, you know. So uh, anything that's <laughs> offensive or uh, counter to what I'm trying to do, I, I wouldn't allow in the show. I, I've not had that experience, though. In terms of quality, I think with each show, I'm getting better and better about being more precise about what I need and also who I ask to do the shows. And it doesn't mean that the people in the first show weren't people I chose, but they, they definitely were. But I think I get a little bit more aware of how to set things up so people don't go off the deep end with things. Right. And, um, you know, there are things, though, that I will reject. If you don't frame something or give me any ability to hang it, um, sometimes if you're like, I really couldn't do this, can you help me out? That's fine. But um, I set up really strict standards about stuff like that because honestly, I don't have the time to, to, to frame it. Because we're talking about, I get all the work and then notoriously I'm getting work as I'm hanging. Of course, you know? yeah. So like, you After know, the event takes place. <laughs> exactly. And you know, and, and sometimes that's fine. You know, I don't mind doing, I do a lot of favors for artists because I know they're donating, donating their work, but at the same time, like, you know, it's a professional show. My thought is that when I ask people to do this, this isn't some haphazard, you know, whatever show that is, you know, at, at a high school, you know, this right. is... It's also an honor. 
yeah. know, to be asked to be in this thing. I mean, I, I wouldn't. I think that I'm asking them for a favor. Hey, you're a really great artist. Can you do me this thing? Yeah, but it's also yeah. going to get a fair amount of recognition. Yeah. You know, it's going to get press. So it is, in effect, you know, an honor to be asked to take part in it. And that's, and that's really my job is that, you know, if somebody's donating this work and they're a super talented person, I've been lucky enough to have a lot of these people. I, my goal is just to get as many people in the door and get as many press outlets to cover it you know because the least i can do is make sure that people feel like they're putting their time and their effort into something that i care about and i want everybody to know about too right, right. you know um but you know i've i've rejected things not often but i've also gotten really good at specifically agreeing for pe agreeing to people being in the show most most of the time in the past i've gone to people but with the last paul show over half of the artists were people who approached me Mm -hmm. And so that was nice, actually, to be honest. And some people, I didn't, I, I was like, it's it's not a good fit, whatever. Um, but other people um, I didn't know about whose work was great. And so I'm getting a little bit better about making sure that the people I ask and the people that are involved are of a certain caliber. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm pretty, the Paw Show was one of the best shows I've, I've put on, you know, and I feel like that's because I've really found a group of artists that I'm really confident in. Every piece, I was like, this is great in this way. This is right. great in this way. Yeah, you know, I also don't have the restrictions that a lot of people organize shows, I think, Think have a very small definition of what art is like this is art this small tiny box right, right. only those people can be part of the show and i'm not interested in that if you know enough about art history there's lots of different kinds of art and i think i'm open to be people reinterpreting what that is and so i don't have you know then i i embrace abstraction or i embrace non-objective i embrace the things that maybe other people think are bad because it doesn't look like their work and i think you know, for me, um, I want that variety because it gets more people talking about it. I don't know. That's the, that's just my viewpoint. So the Paw Show was so much of variety and mm -hmm. so much of it were Philadelphia. I mean, most of it were Philadelphia artists donating. So right. now, in, in thinking about all the different organizations that you could be benefiting, how do you parse out those that you want to specifically benefit from these things and draw attention to? Like, what do you think are the most crucial criteria involved in in you focusing on this group versus others that may do similar things? Um, well, I mean, I think, first of all, I, I see how their money is being spent. I mean, that's a really important thing. I think if, if you're, you know, someone who's donating to a charity, you should know what your money is being spent on. And hopefully the majority of it isn't, isn't you know, administration or anything yeah, like that. Yeah, you often hear like 92% of the budget went yeah. to admin and then you think, Jesus Christ. No, that's and that's and, and I'm not, yeah, I'm not interested in, in focusing on those charities. That's why when I did the Ocean Show, I did my research, Oceana and Sea Shepherd are two organizations that put their money back into, you know, saving wildlife. They And either through direct action like Sea Shepherd where they're actually getting in front of ships. Yeah, yeah. Or Oceana who has tons of programs internationally to try to, you know, prevent the slaughter of sharks or prevent, you know, whale hunting. And, you know, and they work at it two different ways. And I felt like that show was really good because the two organizations, one was, one was direct action, one was more politically minded, but you have to kind of have both to have real change. Mm -hmm. um, and then the World Wildlife Fund, I mean, I don't, I think that we all agree, hopefully, that, that, that this is an organization... These cats are not disagreeing. Yeah, <laughs> that, that this organization has been working hard for so many years, so many decades at this point, and all they do is work in these areas to try to improve, you know, things like wildlife trafficking. And, and they're, you know, even though they're a gigantic organization, they really spend their money in the way that I appreciate and they're doing good things. Mm -hmm. And BatCon's the same way. Uh, and PAWS was kind of an odd odd one, I think, because most of my organizations have been fairly national or international. But PAWS I decided on because I was like, you know, well, my cat, one, one of our cats, actually multiple uh, cats that we have are from Paws, and I thought dealing with a local organization, especially now that I live here, uh, would be great. And um, you know, we were, we were we were able to raise a good amount of money for them, and um, I volunteered at Paws, and watching what they do is really important. And I went to the um, was it the ACCT, the the large. Um, uh, the large place that everybody brings, okay. you know, you know, and hearing the statistics of how many animals get euthanized every day there and how pause takes as many as they can, but they don't have the facilities to have more is really heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. The idea that I met a dog and the next day the dog wasn't, didn't exist anymore. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and pause outreach in their free clinics, that kind of stuff is, I, you can't really, I can't really say enough about all the stuff that they yeah, do. Yeah, I know people who work for them, and, and I think they do you know, phenomenal work. Um, yeah, and, and I think that stuff is really important, especially because that directly affects how we work in our community, in the mm -hmm. Philadelphia community. You know, and they're, they're I, I think they're one of the few organizations, you know, 
know, uh, that really you can see the work happening and you could see it benefiting. And that was always really important about those organizations I chose. Right. So when you do things in the public, you kind of leave yourself open to public criticism. You know, if there's an article Absolutely. about you, you know, the, the public, this kind of faceless, largely anonymous mass, sometimes very trollish, can you know, present their ill-formed or offensive views to you. So do, have you had to deal with that at all with any of your projects? Um, not, honestly, not that much. I mean, I, there's, there's people that will, you know, I, I remember in a couple of the event pages I had where someone was like, I can't believe you're donating to this person or, or whatever, or this charity. And they have a viewpoint of, of whatever it is. And, you know, um, I, I try not to take that stuff too much to heart because everyone has their opinions. And I understand, I think it's a little bit, you know, annoying that you would post it on an event page, like like you need your voice heard so much that you kind of want to ruin it for everyone else. But okay, fine, <laughs> whatever. And I mean, I'm sure that there are people who find what I do or the things that I do not the acceptable way. Or maybe you have viewpoints about, you know, um, the level of organization or how I organize things. I'm sure that there are people like that. And I'm sure that there are a ton of people saying things that I don't know about. Yeah. But honestly, I'm too old to give a shit. Yeah. Uh, all I care about is the fact that the artists in the show feel like their work is represented, that they feel like they like other artists within the show, and the charity feels like they're getting um, the benefit of publicity and money to right. be able to go to this amazing thing. And if someone really has a problem with that stuff, I feel like they maybe should look at themselves because that doesn't say very good things about you. If all I'm doing, I don't take any profit. I should I should say that ahead of time. There's no profit for me in this. I spend money and I donate work. I nothing I've ever done gives me money in any of this. Right. In fact, I wind up spending a couple hundred dollars at least. It, yeah, I, I don't yeah. even keep track because it makes me sad. So, <laughs> it's making me sad to hear this. Yeah. So like, I don't, I don't take money. I don't take a percentage. I don't keep any of the work. Um, all of the work that, that we've done, I continuously sell until it's gone. And all that money, even if I sell things afterwards, goes directly to the organizations. Mm -hmm. So this isn't benefiting me in some weird way. Right, it's, right. it's purely just a labor of love. And so those people who are thinking about organizing, you need to be dedicated to it and not dedicated because you think you're going to make a profit because as everybody knows from the things that you love doing, you know, my, my roommate, uh, Sal Georgie runs peasant magic and he loves noise music and he doesn't turn a profit. Basically he's just doing this because it's a labor of love of something uh, he's interested in. You, know? you didn't see the other house that I bought from Loud Fast. Yeah. Really? It's <laughs> exactly. so much nicer than this yeah. one. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, you know, Joseph probably understands this. You know, you, you do the thing because you love doing it, not because you're getting a profit from it. So someone else is really going to pick out something I'm doing when I'm spending six months to a year planning the show and all of the hours that I'm spending doing it, then um, I don't know. I guess I just find it useless. I guess because you 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 know you're coming through punk, you have this thing in your toolbox, like this middle finger, like well, fuck you. you yeah. know? <laughs> Other people might be like more sensitive in their approach to like some annoying trolls, non-issues about something, but you you know you could just tell them to go fuck themselves because who cares? Yeah. I mean, and, and I understand. Like or I do your own event. Yeah. Ex exactly. Like if if you have a big problem with either organization I'm choosing, or and I understand. Like not everybody has the same viewpoints on on how people proceed. You know, um, I, I think the Sea Shepherd was the one I, I specifically remember someone posting about on the event page because, you know, they were angry about them doing direct action things. And I was like, well, I'm sorry, but I agree with it, which is why I chose them, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. And, of course, it affects me. And if I hear things from other people, things being said, of course, I'm sensitive to that. But at the end of the day, I, I can't waste my time on it because it's just so many hours are being spent to do this thing. And I just have to think that there's a there's a greater good there that I'm more interested in mm -hmm. than some asshole like you know saying what whatever they want to to try to discredit or to minimize how important this is you know mm -hmm. if you have such a problem I agree go out and do your own thing right, please right. go out and do your own thing because if that means that you're gonna make more money for other great organizations great go do it I don't want to be the only person doing this it's silly if I am. You know, there should be lots of yeah, us. Yeah, yeah, it's a chorus of voices rather than, a, you know, a yeah. solo operation. Uh, and I, I will say, back to sort of the <clears throat> idea of the punk community, I think running these shows is maybe the first time I felt part of a larger community dealing with punk and dealing with, you know, artists, um, this, amount, this amount of artists. And so, um, but that's really recent. Again, like, you know, I've always found found to, myself to be on, on the core edge. And again, I, I'm not part of an artist collective. I do all this stuff on my own like solo, just me, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, and, and the people I've curated with, the World Wildlife Show was with that, that gentleman, Josh Robeson, and the other one was with Mike and Gina. So people, I mean, those shows really are helpful because you have other people kind of working with you. 
Um, but even then, you're, we're all still doing a lot of work, you know, so right, right. forget the trolls, whatever. Right. <laughs> so I guess we'll, we'll kind of wrap it up. But one thing I like to get into sometimes, um, and it's, it's always hard to kind of to phrase this question properly so that it doesn't come over as really cheesy. But, okay, in thinking of other young women who want to become involved actively in something, be it social issue, political issue, environmental, you know, something that's going to put them to the forefront where people are going to you know, be listening to them, they're going to be projecting themselves to people. Um, you know, a lot of times women can, uh, it can be very difficult, I think, at times that, that they're kind of marginalized out of histories, I think, you know, part of the reason they're doing something like this is I think that women are largely marginalized and pushed out of the histories of punk. Um, and then in a much more important level, just as a voice and not a body. So in being a woman who clearly came up with feminist ideals, despite the Catholicism, yeah. um, and always being a proponent of it and, and actively engaging with people, um, do, do you have like certain advice or ideas that you would kind of want to impart to, you know, a young woman who would maybe want to do similar things? Yeah. I mean, I, and I know that, like I said, I would love to say that there was a community force for me. And honestly, I just did a lot of this stuff on my own. And maybe that's what I would impart to someone else is that don't be afraid to do it by yourself. Don't be afraid to create something that doesn't exist yeah. as a way of sort of impacting the world around you. We tend to think we need these large groups of people, and we do. We are dependent on other people when it comes to certain actions. But I think we as individuals have the power to produce change on our own. And women especially, we can create our own things. We don't need to have the backing of some dude or the backing of even, even other women. Although, obviously, that's ideal because I've been parts of really... I mean, right now I have a really good core group of women that I feel like I bounce ideas off of. And it's the most rewarding relationships or group of relationships... I've had in a really long time and that's important but I think if you don't have that that's okay if you're outside that's okay stick with it mm -hmm. do your own thing create your own space and your own words and I think if you look back on it women have a especially in the last 20 years have a history of being able to do this you look at you know what Bikini Kill did and L7 did and they're they're making these strides in, in ways in the 90s that heavily influenced me mm. you know that are very different than anything else that's existed you know third wave feminism or the you know rye girl movement all that stuff came out of just of one or two people going fuck this mm -hmm. and right. trying to get into something else and be able to create their own thing whether it's by themselves or with a group mm -hmm. you know you can do this and you can also find different ways to get in i mean yeah like you can be a musician i never had that that ability you right. know so i took a camera and i photographed a bunch of bands and even though i was shy it was my entrance into punk and I use that as a way to meet people. And I think you can find your own way of doing that. And it's okay if you're not with other people. You can find your space. You just have to be willing and courageous to create your own. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's, that's my feeling. And also, don't shit talk other women. <laughs> that's, that, that's maybe the other thing. You know, I understand that sometimes you're, you feel isolated and that's an easy go-to. But don't shit talk other, other women. Other people, you know do it all the time. I think in this movement, there shouldn't be that, you know, we should have safe spaces and we can talk about gender as a pretty big issue in the punk movement. But the other thing is women have to support other women just because I'm not part of a community of women that often, it doesn't actually mean that I'm sitting there talking shit on anybody else, right. you know, mm -hmm. you know, like I don't care how you dress. I don't care what you do. You know, as long as you're respectful and nice and like a decent human being, that, that's my gauge as to how I'm going to treat you. Right. Yeah. Were there any women's voices that were especially <clears throat> crucial to you, you know, developing you? And by voices, I mean, you know, any sort of creative output. Were there certain, you know, women that you, that, that meant a lot, you know, fundamentally to your, in your growth as a young person? Um, I mean, I think there's definitely bands that, that kind of formed. I mean, I, I remember getting the Slits album and I remember getting, uh, the, the, you know, the, the Runaways album and that being sort of my entrance. And in, in Hold too I mean, Courtney Love in, its, in, in her 90s heyday, you know, I sort of embraced and I was never of that personality, but I love the sort of fuck you she gives to everybody. Mm -hmm. um, but there's other women too, you know, like um, uh, Elizabeth Wurzel, who wrote that um, bitch and praise of um, difficult women was like one of the books I remember first reading and being like, holy shit, like there's a history of really difficult and intense women cool mm -hmm. you know and being really like you know I'm, you ever see the uh, research angry women book no i don't of, think so yeah it's kind of a collection of like 
incendiary women's voices and art and things like that. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, and, and there's other and there's other ones too. Um, uh, there's this other book that I remember reading when I was 20 and being like, I, it was um, whores and and uh, whores and other women or something like that. It was all about sort of the pro pornography, you know, pro prostitution movement of sort of the third wave, and that being like really critical for me too. I mean, obviously there's a lot of people. You know, we could talk about Bikini Kill and L7. We talk about you know, uh, La Tigre and, and a number of other women bands that obviously heavily influenced how I, how I worked, you know, and, uh, you know, I didn't even mention it, but Team Dresh is like one of the biggest ones. I mean, yeah. you have a band that sort of creates not only their own band, but their label and, and even, you know, a zine and you have a per basically a small group of people that are just friends creating all this stuff. And I think that's pretty great. I don't know. I, I think, I think those are the voices that I remember being like, yeah, awesome. You know, um, and, you know, I mean, there's men in there, too. But I, I think those are the females that I, I feel like I'm most connected to right. between 1993 and, and 2000, right, right. you know. <laughs> okay. Super. Well, I mean, thank you very much for uh, talking to me and sitting down doing the thing. Thank you so much for asking me. You're welcome. <laughs>